Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox in for Tiffany Meyer. Here are today's top stories. Former President Trump is found to have inflated property values. The ruling by a New York judge simplifies the path for New York AG Letitia James. The first president to join a picket line. What's surprising about Biden's move and how former President Trump takes a different strategy with the same group of voters? Alabama's congressional voting map turned down again. The Supreme Court today saying the state needs a new map. We explain why. Senator Bob Menendez facing mounting pressure from within his own party as a growing number of Democrats call for him to resign. Meanwhile, a looming government shutdown potentially just five days from now. Hunter Biden says in a lawsuit that Rudy Giuliani illegally hacked his data, but he doesn't admit that the data came from his laptop. The stage is set for the second GOP presidential debate. Who's in, who's out? We have the lineup and a snapshot of some of the candidates. We begin with an update on former President Trump's New York case. A judge handed Attorney General Letitia James a major victory today. He ruled that Trump fraudulently inflated the value of his assets in order to secure loans and insurance deals. The decision is a major blow for Trump. And President Biden breaking conventions by becoming the first sitting president to join a picket line. That's as both Biden and Trump vie for blue-collar support, though with different strategies. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. Standing shoulder to shoulder with members of the United Auto Workers, and President Biden on Tuesday told them they deserve higher pay and should stick with their strikes. Stick with it. You deserve the significant raise you need and other benefits. Let's get it. Let's get back who we lost, okay? The White House calls Biden's Michigan trip historic as he was the first U.S. president to join a picket line in modern times. But Biden spent only about 12 minutes on the site and spoke for only 87 seconds. Thus is Biden's facing criticism from breaking from the long-standing tradition of U.S. presidents taking a hands-off approach to labor disputes. The White House walking a thin line. This is for the parties to negotiate. We're not going to go, we're not going to speak to what's being put at the table. Biden, however, did say yes when asked if he supports workers' demand for a 40% pay raise. Meanwhile, former President Trump is also coming to Michigan on Wednesday to talk to striking auto workers. But instead of joining them to ask for higher pay, Trump's expected to talk to them about how to keep their jobs. UAW President Sean Fain thanked President Biden for joining them on Tuesday. But the union is still withholding their endorsement of President Biden, citing concerns over job loss due to President Biden's push for EVs. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. And the U.S. Supreme Court today announcing Alabama needs a new congressional map. A lower court previously said the map is unlawfully biased against black voters. Here are the details. The U.S. Supreme Court on Tuesday is rejecting a congressional voting map from Alabama. The map has been turned down multiple times since 2022. The most recent rejection came from a federal court in Alabama earlier this month. It ruled the map as unlawfully biased against black voters and must be redrawn. The Alabama map includes one majority black congressional district. The federal court ruled, we are deeply troubled that the state enacted a map that the state readily admits does not provide the remedy we said federal law requires. 
The judges said an additional minority black district was acquired and ruled that a special master must be appointed to draw a remedial map. Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall then responded that the state would appeal the order, saying, We strongly believe that the legislature's map complies with the Voting Rights Act. It was this appeal that the Supreme Court rejected on Tuesday, which means a special master will now draw the congressional map, and it will also be used for the 2024 elections. This could help Democrats who are trying to regain control of the House next year. In addition to the political drama over a potential government shutdown just five days from now, there are growing calls for Senator Bob Menendez to resign. Those calls mounting today from within his own party. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has more from Capitol Hill. At least one-third of the Democratic Senate caucus, that is at least 17 Democrat senators, have said that Senator Bob Menendez should resign following that indictment, the most notable of which calling for his resignation is Senator Cory Booker, who's his fellow Democrat senator from New Jersey. Booker said that this is essentially a question of trust. While in his statement he did point out some uh, good characteristics that he sees in Senator Menendez, he also described the federal corruption charges as shocking allegations of corruption and specific disturbing details of wrongdoing, saying he's found the allegations hard to reconcile with the person I know and proceeded to call for his resignation. And on top of this, there is a looming government shutdown just five days from now. Both chambers are taking action, but nothing that's promising. The Senate right now is working on passing a short-term funding bill, but it's unclear if that bill will have a path forward in the House. On top of this, there are some Republicans in the House who have threatened to oust Speaker McCarthy if he chooses to work with Democrats to pass a short-term funding bill. But despite this, McCarthy is continuing to push to pass that short-term funding bill with some provisions to change border policy by the end of this week. He's arguing that this is a solution that both Republicans and Democrats should support. Here's what McCarthy has to say in the midst of it all. It would seem to me there would be some, some Democrats who would want to do this. But within your and, own party. Well, I, w I wouldn't know who in our own party would want to side and take the position of Biden on the border. And McCarthy is again trying to push through a handful of those 12 appropriations bills where there's still some issues lingering around the defense budget, which Republicans refused to accept last week. That still is ongoing right now, that tension, considering the fact that McCarthy has backpedaled on his stance of stripping Ukraine aid from that Pentagon budget. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And as more Democratic lawmakers react to the charges against Senator Menendez, we turn to a legal analysis of some of the key points in his case. Earlier today, I spoke with the chairman and CEO of the National Legal and Policy Center, Peter Flaherty, for his take. Peter Flaherty, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. Some observers are saying that Senator Menendez is looking at up to 45 years behind bars if he's convicted of all charges. What are the other possible outcomes here? Well, of course, he could be found not guilty. I think that's unlikely. If you read the indictment and look at the pictures of the cash stacked on top of a jacket with his name on it, and look at the gold bars, and look at the photo of the Mercedes-Benz, it's quite clear that he has a problem. I believe that it's likely he'll be convicted. Now, he has wiggled away before. In 2017, he was tried for bribery, and... Uh, there was a hung jury resulting in a mistrial, and the Justice Department chose not to retry him. And I do want to come back to that, but 
First up, on this case, fingerprints were found on the envelopes of cash, on the gold bars, and yet the senator says that he's been withdrawing this cash to, you know, protect himself from having his cash seized due to a family, his family history in Cuba. What do you make of his claims on this in relation to the evidence? It's so wildly implausible, it says to me that he's nailed. Uh, this business about keeping uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash in your closet for emergencies or that you fear confiscation because your folks grew up in, in Cuba, I think it's uh, getting the laughter it deserves. Uh, none of that explains uh, what the fingerprints of the people who provided the bribes were doing on the envelopes. I'd like to hear his explanation for that. I want to look at the pressure that's mounting from other Democrat lawmakers at the moment for Menendez to resign. What do you think that kind of political pressure, um, what kind of effect could that have on the legal proceedings? I don't think it'll affect the, 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 the trial too much. Um, I do believe that uh, Menendez is shameless. Uh, for the trial in 2017, there were calls that he resigned. They came from Democrats. And Menendez uh, just ignored them, as he's doing now. He did not say um, yesterday during his press conference that he was running for re-election, but that was the implication because he said he intends to remain the senior senator from New Jersey for a long time. And the Senate has not expelled one of its own since 1862, I believe, but it has been able to apply pressure in certain circumstances which has led to some senators stepping down on their own. How do you see Menendez playing out the rest of his term? I believe that Menendez will continue to be defiant. I believe he'll go to trial. Uh, I think he will hope that he can get lucky again. And uh, I don't think he's going to do the Democrats a favor. I think he's going to be in the news month after month. And it's pretty bad when uh, we're heading into an election year. Menendez tried to play the ethnic card yesterday by uh, giving half the press conference in Spanish and claiming that he was being prosecuted because he was Hispanic. Now, not even uh, AOC bought that. So uh, the PR campaign is uphill for Menendez, that's for sure. All right. All interesting insights. Thank you so much, Peter Flaherty. Great to speak with you. And Hunter Biden says Rudy Giuliani totally annihilated his digital privacy. This comes in a lawsuit he filed today in a California federal court. NTD's Arlene Richards has more. Is it fraudulent to publish someone's personal computer data? Hunter Biden says it is. That's why he's suing Rudy Giuliani and others. He states in a lawsuit filed Tuesday that Giuliani and attorney Robert Costello illegally distributed his private information, information that possibly came from a laptop Biden owned. The younger Biden is not admitting to owning the laptop that was dropped off at a Delaware computer repair shop. However, he does contend that the shop owner obtained computer data that belonged to him and that it was given to Costello. Shop owner John Paul McIsaac is not named in the lawsuit, but it does claim that Costello illegally received a data drive in the mail from McIsaac and that Costello and Giuliani repeatedly booted up the drive. They repeatedly accessed plaintiff's account to gain access to the drive, and they proceeded to tamper with, manipulate, alter, damage, and create bootable copies of plaintiff's data over a period of many months, if not years. The lawsuit states that the action of repeatedly booting up the drive violates state and federal law. 
For example, California prohibits using data to commit fraud. According to previous reports, the Delaware shop owner has said he made a copy of the laptop's hard drive because he feared for his life. He told Fox News last year that this is why he became fearful. Hunter was in possession of a piece of paper that said that I was allowed to go through three of his laptops and recover data from them. And I just figured it was a matter of time before the Biden fixer-upper service was going to swing by the shop, realize what I had seen, and taken care of and disposed of the laptop, possibly disposed of me. McIsaac said he became nervous when Joe Biden announced his candidacy for president in 2020. Giuliani told Newsmax last August what he did with the data. And there was a big dump. I put out the big dump to the New York Post. But that was the three-week period in which I was communicating with Bob Costello and John McIsaacs. We were going back and forth. And we were doing our own due diligence to make sure that what he had was legitimate. Giuliani said the FBI had seized his iCloud account and he didn't know what they would do with the data. The lawsuit is silent on whether or not McIsaac accessed the laptop without permission and whether or not he illegally obtained the data. Its focus is on subsequent actions by Giuliani and Costello. It will be up to Biden's attorneys to prove that Giuliani and Costello manipulated the data for fraudulent purposes or illegally accessed it. Yes, thanks, Arlene. Next, the Republican National Committee has announced the lineup for the second GOP debate, which is tomorrow. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on which candidates made the cut. To qualify for the second debate, candidates needed at least 3% support in two national polls or 3% in one national poll, as well as two polls from four of the early voting states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. The White House hopefuls also needed at least 50,000 unique donors, with at least 200 of those coming from 20 states or territories. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, long seen as the top rival for Trump, will be on stage on Wednesday. DeSantis believes he is the candidate to take the battle to what he calls the radical left. If you start getting in at the institutional level where the left sees that they're losing control, they fight back and they fight back hard. And you just got to have the spine to stand there. But Republican support for the governor nationally has slipped since its high point earlier this year. Some of that drop could be due to the surge by political newcomer Vivek Ramaswamy, who has tied DeSantis in some polls and closed the gap in others. The entrepreneur has displayed a willingness to go toe-to-toe -to -toe on whatever the topic, appearing on a slew of media channels, including liberal ones. Ramaswamy's surgeon wife Apoorva told ABC News that, as president, her husband will give her children the society they'll want when they enter high school. One where their actions are rewarded based on their merit. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley also made the cut. In contrast to some of her fellow Republican rivals, she supports continued significant military aid to Ukraine, fearing a domino effect if Ukraine falls. If Russia takes Ukraine, then Poland and the Baltics are next, and then we are in war because those are NATO countries. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott is looking for a breakout moment in Wednesday's debate. Scott is calling for a 15-week national limit on abortion. Our objective should be stopping states like California, New York, and Illinois from literally having abortion on demand up until the day of birth. That is immoral. Other candidates include former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, former Vice President Mike Pence, and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum. 
Burgum has been using his fortune to boost his donor total, giving away $20 Biden relief cards in exchange for $1 donations. A notable absent will be former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who didn't qualify this time around. He'll be in Michigan on Wednesday holding a press conference his campaign describes as calling out Donald Trump's false promises. As for the former president, Donald Trump, he'll be meeting with union workers in Michigan and will give a speech shortly before his rivals take the stage in California. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. NTD will have special coverage tomorrow night following the Republican debate. Join Tiffany Meyer from The Spin Room, where she'll be getting reactions from candidates and their surrogates. We'll be taking an in-depth look at what happened, who stood out, and what it all means to you, the voters. That's tomorrow night, starting at 11 p.m. Eastern Time. Next up, Elon Musk is offering his thoughts on COVID-19 vaccine mandates. This comes after European Union censors singled out social media platform X, calling it a top purveyor of disinformation on COVID-19. Now, in a series of posts on X, Musk said he received multiple COVID-19 vaccines so that he could travel amid pandemic restrictions. But after taking his third shot, he was nearly hospitalized. The ex-owner added that he's not against vaccines in principle, but that he opposes mandates forcing people to get the shot. He said, quote, I would rather go to prison than fire good people who didn't want to be jabbed. Earlier today, Musk hit back at European Union censors who called X the platform with the largest ratio of mis- or disinformation posts. They warned Musk to toe the line of self-censorship or else. Musk reacted with a video highlighting waning vaccine effectiveness. Up next, a court shuts down one of New York City's shelter programs for illegal immigrants. Find out why and how officials respond. Cartels making use of immigrants. The Border Patrol chief says cartels are bringing immigrants to overload and distract agents at the border. We bring you how this helps cartels. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in Texas says he wants to make the southern border impenetrable. We hear insights from his campaign trail. And Russian Black Sea Commander Viktor Sokolov appears on national television one day after the Ukrainian military claimed they had assassinated him. Details on this and more when we come back. City is not allowed to shelter illegal immigrants at a shuttered private school on Staten Island. A judge ordered the program to stop today. Staten Island's Republican officials sued Mayor Eric Adams' administration last month. They say Adams is violating zoning laws with the shelter program. Several dozen illegal immigrants are currently housed at St. John's Villa Academy. It's a Roman Catholic private school that's been closed since 2018. New York City officials say they are not vacating the site, despite the judge's order. Instead, they will appeal. They say they're trying to manage the national humanitarian crisis. Using immigrants as a distraction. Cartels allegedly bring in loads of immigrants at one place and then smuggle drugs at other locations. Here are the details. Mexican drug cartels are flooding the southern border with illegal immigrants. U.S. Border Patrol Chief Jason Owens says that's used in part as a distraction, so cartels can smuggle other things into the U.S. 
He told ABC one of those things is illicit fentanyl. In terms of flow and, and the threats that we're seeing uh, with fentanyl and with the uh, criminal organizations that, uh, that are our adversary, it's about as bad as I've ever seen it. He said other things the cartels bring in this way are bulk cash, weapons, hardened criminals, gang members, and even convicted sexual predators. Mr. Owens also said that the primary focus of border agents should be to stop the smuggling of those things. But they're overwhelmed with tens of thousands of illegal immigrants flooding the border. CDC data shows about 71,000 Americans died from overdosing on synthetic opioids, such as fentanyl, in 2021. That was up from almost 58,000 in 2020. The rate of opioid overdose deaths in 2021 was over 20 times the rate in 2013. Meanwhile, House Republican Tony Gonzalez of Texas says we shouldn't rely on other nations to solve the border crisis. If we're going to rely on Mexico, there was just this deal. If we're going to rely on Mexico to handle our immigration system, I'm very concerned with that because they're, they've failed in every aspect. You just look at the, the fentanyl crisis. Me Mexico has not helped us in this, in this area, so we can't allow, allow on other countries to handle our national security. Just last week, Homeland Security made the announcement it was deploying more military personnel to the border. The agency announced 800 new active duty troops were being sent to the border to help the 2,500 Federal National Guard members already assisting CBP. That's across the entire length of the southern border. The Biden administration aims to keep the U.S. refugee cap at 125,000. That's according to a draft report obtained by CNN. It recommends an increase in the number of arrivals from the Western Hemisphere and a decrease from Europe and Central Asia. These changes could provide a legal avenue for migrants without having to journey to the U.S.-Mexico border. And Democratic contender Robert F. Kennedy Jr. this week criticized President Biden over the border and what he called a humanitarian crisis. That as pressure from other quarters over Biden's border policies increases, New York City officials in court today defending Mayor Eric Adams' latest move. He's attempting to reduce the length of time illegal immigrants can stay in the city's shelters amid a surge that he has warned will destroy New York City. Today I spoke with Epic Times reporter Jeff Lauterbach, who's been covering this story. Jeff Lauterbach, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Now, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s recent comments on the southern border diverged starkly from President Biden's stance, at least his, in practice, and he's polling far behind Biden currently. Yet the border is a top issue for voters this election. So how do you think these comments could impact his run and his numbers currently? Well, since the beginning, uh, Robert F. Kennedy entered the campaign, uh, entered the race back in April. He's differed on several uh, key issues compared to President Biden. That's why he's getting support from conservatives and moderates and some Democrats. Uh, as far as the border, he just believes that to have security and safety in the United States, there needs to be a secure border. And he even admitted uh, earlier in the campaign that he shared President Biden's views on the border until he went down there. He went down there a few months ago and saw it firsthand. And then he said he, he liked uh, President Trump's version of uh, how the border should be handled with building a wall or finishing the wall and also having technology and resources down there to confront the issue. 
And now he's calling President Biden's um, policies at the border a way to fund cartels. So he's become quite critical of those policies. And it comes at the same time as some Democrat lawmakers um, in other states and cities are changing their stance on the border and even in some sanctuary cities becoming quite cautious or even critical of the influx that you know just seems to keep rising. So do you see this as some kind of shift overall, a significant shift or a tipping point that we're reaching? Well, I think we're seeing that across the country. I don't know who said it, but I think a few people, a few elected officials have said it. It's not a U.S.-Mexico border issue. It's a, a countrywide issue for the United States because uh, immigrants are being shipped all over the country. So it's becoming something that uh, no matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, your resources are being drained in, in the city that you lead. So yeah, it's becoming a widespread issue. And that's why so many Democrats and Democrat-led cities and states are speaking out about it. And now RFK Jr. is calling on Republicans and Democrats to come together to secure the border. So do you think that he could potentially, uh, you know, take a lead or gain, make significant gains as with this stance of uniting both sides. Well, that's been his theme since the beginning. Healing the divide is one of his campaign slogans, and that's why he's re resonated resonating with so many different uh, people across the political spectrum. And I mean, that, th this is a time. And also talking about the polls. I don't think you could put much uh, credibility in a lot of those polls that show President Biden with the big lead because of how mainstream media handles polling and how, I, if you go to these town halls, I, I cover the campaign across the country, there's an enthusiasm that matches uh, President Trump or then Donald Trump running for president in 2016. And the RFK Jr. campaign has a lot of, I've talked to a lot of people who supported Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020 and are supporting RFK Jr. because of that, because they want unity. They don't want a uniparty or they don't want divisiveness. Right. You're on the ground there in touch with voters. Are you seeing any kind of shift in sentiment among their, them or in the numbers supporting him on the ground? Yeah, well, I was in uh, Austin, Texas this past weekend, and he's been getting pretty much at every event, five to 600 people. And he intentionally keeps it around that number because after every event, what he does that's pretty unique that you can never imagine uh, Joe Biden doing this is he poses for selfies with, he, with each person after his speech and after his event. And he has a line and it's expedient. Uh, you know, they get through five or 600 people pretty quickly. But that's a brilliant strategy because all those people are going to post their selfie online. So that's reminiscent of uh, maybe uh, Barack Obama, I know, was um, his campaign. That's one reason why he got elected, because he used okay. social media effectively. So RFK Jr. is using his, the enthusiasm for his campaign and looking for traditional or non-traditional methods of getting the name out there. Yeah, that's definitely a part of his brand, and we'll have to see how that plays out in the long run. Thank you so much, Jeff Lauterbach. Great to speak with you. Thank you. Dead or alive? Russian Black Sea Commander Viktor Sokolov made an appearance on state television today 
This comes just one day after Ukrainian special forces announced his death. A video released by the Kremlin's defense ministry showed Sokolov attending a meeting with several other military leaders. It wasn't clear when the video was recorded. Just yesterday, Ukrainian special forces claimed they had killed the Russian admiral, along with 33 other officers, in a missile attack in Crimea last week. Ukraine's military now says it is, quote, clarifying information regarding Sokolov's alleged assassination. And turning now to Canada, the nation's Speaker of the House of Commons, Anthony Roda, is stepping down after praising a former Nazi soldier in Parliament last Friday. Here's Rhoda announcing his resignation from the position. That public recognition has caused pain to individuals and communities, including the Jewish community in Canada and around the world, in addition to survivors of Nazi atrocities in Poland, among other nations. During a House session honoring Ukrainian President Zelensky, Rhoda publicly recognized a Nazi veteran as a hero who fought for Ukraine without knowing his past. He received a standing ovation from the audience that includes Zelensky and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Opposition parties and leaders and his own party began to call on Rhoda to step down. His resignation will come into effect at the end of tomorrow. Coming up, a landmark monopoly case. The federal government and over a dozen states are suing Amazon, accusing the company of unfairly stifling competition. NTD's Don Ma explains what's at stake. Cyber attacks on schools are surging. Cyber criminals see your kids' data as valuable information. We tell you why and what you can do about it. Many business owners in Oakland, California, say they're fed up with crime. They're now demanding more action from city officials to combat the rising levels of theft and violence. And also in California, two teens accused of killing a retired police chief are now facing additional charges. We'll have details on this and more here on NTD News. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. A judge ruled that Trump inflated the value of his assets to secure loans. This simplifies the path for New York AG Letitia James. The penalty will be determined in trial next Monday. President Biden joined a picket line with striking members of the United Auto Workers Union in Michigan. He's the first sitting U.S. president to join a strike. He told them they deserve higher pay. The Supreme Court ruled that a special master will have to redraw Alabama's congressional map. A lower court previously ruled that the map is unlawfully biased against black voters. At least a third of the Senate Democratic Caucus are calling on Senator Bob Menendez to resign amid bribery charges. This comes as a possible government shutdown is just five days away. Hunter Biden sued former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani and another attorney. He alleges Giuliani breached his digital privacy without directly acknowledging that the infamous laptop was his. Another landmark monopoly case. The federal government and over a dozen states are suing Amazon. This groundbreaking lawsuit by the Federal Trade Commission and 17 attorneys general marks the U.S. government's sharpest attack yet on Amazon. For more on this, I spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma. 
Don, great to have you on our show. Thanks for coming on. How's it going? Yeah, great to be here with you, Steph. Excellent. Now, I want to start with this Amazon case. What is going on here? What are the allegations? Yeah, sure, Steph. So the main thing here is accusations that Amazon actually unfairly stifled competition. Uh, you know, so for example, the FTC California and District of Columbia Attorneys General have accused it of unfairly prohibiting merchants from offering lower prices at rivals. You know, that's like Walmart, Target, and Costco. And there's also allegations that Amazon unfairly pro, uh, promotes its own platform and services. And this is at, at the expense of third-party sellers on Amazon. And it also ranks its own products in search results higher than those sold by third parties. And the FTC is also accusing Amazon of harming competition uh, by requiring sellers uh, on its platform to use Amazon's own logistic services. Um, that's in order to get the best benefits. Um, and the important thing here is that the agency is saying that because of Amazon's dominance uh, in e-commerce, right, sellers have little option but to accept Amazon's terms. And, you know, it's saying that this is leading to things like higher prices for consumers and a worse consumer experience. And these are allegations similar to which Amazon has faced for years now. Uh, what, what's Amazon's response this time? Yeah, I mean, of course, Amazon denies those allegations. It says that uh, the very things that the FTC is alleging are the exact things that are actually helping to increase competition and having increased uh, product variety. Um, these things are also uh, lowering prices and helping with faster delivery speeds and more opportunity for businesses. So basically, Amazon is claiming that uh, what the FTC is doing now would actually have the opposite effect, um, that it leads to fewer products to choose from, higher prices, slower deliveries for consumers, and, and reduced options for small businesses. So Don, what are the stakes for Amazon in this case? Well, Steph, if Amazon loses, you know, at this point in time, it's unclear what the measures will be imposed on the company. Uh, the, mon the monopoly cases could potentially take years to resolve, so we'll have to keep a lookout on that. Um, the FTC said consumers and sellers would benefit if the agencies is a victorious in the case, but it's unknown what measures could ensure that, actually. But, you know, I think at the extreme end of this, uh, it could pave the way to breaking up the company. Uh, personally, I would say this is unlikely, but, but still the FTC is declining, is de declining to say uh, whether it will be seeking a breakup. Don, great to hear your thoughts. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you, Steph. Cyber attacks on schools have seen dramatic increase impacting children and their education. Why are criminals hacking our kids' data, and how do we protect it? NTD's Emma Shi has more. Cyber attacks on schools surged during the pandemic. Education is now the fifth most targeted industry. Suddenly, hackers have thousands and thousands of identities that have clean, no negative credit reports identities to choose from with these children. Cybersecurity expert John Young says adults find out very quickly when their identities have been stolen. There are security monitors in place. But with kids, years could go by before they find out. Kids generally don't have much financial data, 
but they can be the targets of long-term identity thefts. It's the culmination of all the pieces, those digital breadcrumbs that provide value to a hacker. Cybersecurity expert Scott Schober says that when criminals put together all these puzzle pieces about you, they can do things to you you've never even thought of. They build up this beautiful digital profile about you, your whereabouts, your habits, and they use that against you to take your money, to take your identity, to take your credit, you name it. Criminals can also shut down the schools and demand ransom, or they can steal data and won't give it back unless the school pays ransom. This happened with the LA Unified School District last year. Employee records are also valuable because they contain social security numbers. These can be a foundation for building a fake identity, which can then be used to buy things. Unfortunately, parents can't do much to protect their children's data. Everybody really is at the mercy of whoever the organization is and their IT and cybersecurity departments. Their cybersecurity defensive posture is what really drives everything. Cybersecurity expert John Young says there's no way for parents to see the cybersecurity status of their kids' data. Because if this information were public, hackers could see it too. And wealthier parts of the country don't necessarily have stronger security. It depends primarily on the experience and expertise of the organization that manages the data. Emma Shi, NTD News. Target will be closing nine stores in major cities on both coasts. The retail giant is citing violence and theft as the reasons. Target announced today it will shut down one store in New York City's Harlem neighborhood, two locations in Seattle, three stores in the San Francisco-Oakland area, and three stores in Portland, Oregon. The stores will close by October 21st. The company said, quote, we cannot continue operating these stores because theft and organized retail crime are threatening the safety of our team and guests and contributing to unsustainable business performance. And zooming in on Oakland, where more than 200 businesses have pledged to take part in a citywide strike protesting the spike in crime. It's an effort to send a strong message to City Hall. NTD's David Lamb has that story. I'm here in Oakland and today many business owners went on strike to call for more police officers and support from the city in order to keep their businesses running and for the community to thrive. Business owners rallied in Oakland Tuesday morning to express their frustration with the city's growing theft and violent crime. Many say the current situation has forced small businesses to close their doors. People don't feel safe. Carl Chen, president of Oakland Chinatown's Chamber of Commerce, said he called for the strike to demand more action and resources from city leaders. We want to make sure that there will be direct resources supporting businesses and definitely want to cut down the crime rate. And also we are asking for public safety measures from all different government levels, city, county, state and federal government. According to reports from Oakland Police, the city has seen a 21% increase in violent crime between 2022 to 2023. On top of that, the city just missed out on millions in grants to help fight retail crime. State officials say the city missed the application deadline earlier this month. I want the federal agents and federal government to be at the same table because they're the ones that provide you billions of dollars. And, uh, but that's the irony, they're all sitting right there. And we can't seem to work together. The rally was held at Le Cheval, a 38-year-old Vietnamese restaurant that's closing at the end of this month due to increasing crime in the neighborhood. The strike lasted roughly two hours from 10 a.m. to noon and was symbolic. 
We just don't have enough police officers. Right now, Oakland has about 713 police officers. According to the FBI statistics, they should have a minimum of 1,000. They're coming in robbing. They, hide, they get children to come in and do it. I don't really blame the police officers for not wanting to come to a situation where it's loaded with, uh, with robbers because it's a bloodbath. They don't have enough protection, enough, enough help. The city and government are expected to meet next week to discuss a plan of action. The city of Oakland tells NTD in a statement that they're working to, quote, strengthen community safety and in the coming weeks will disperse grants for community ambassadors, safety programs, and small business assistance. Reporting in Oakland, California, David Lamb, NTD News. And staying on the West Coast, the two teenagers accused of killing a former police chief in a hit and run have been given additional criminal charges. Both have been arrested and are being held as adults. NTD's Eileen Ang has the latest. Prosecutors filed additional criminal charges Monday against two teenagers for the alleged intentional hit and run that killed a cyclist on a Las Vegas road. Both suspects are being held as adults for the video recording of the killing. The teens, ages 18 and 16, are due in court on Tuesday following what police say were at least three hit-and-run incidents the morning of August 14th. This included the apparently intentional crash that killed 64-year-old cyclist Andreas or Andy Probes. Probes retired in 2009 as police chief in the Los Angeles-area city of Bell. Two juveniles joyriding in a car intentionally hitting and killing an innocent man who was riding a bicycle and leaving him for dead along the side of a road. Clark County District Attorney Steve Wolfson said he filed five felony and two misdemeanor charges against the 18-year-old, including attempted murder, battery with a weapon, leaving the scene of a crash, and possession of a stolen vehicle. He was 17 when he was arrested last month. A battery with a weapon charge was added to the murder and attempted murder counts against the 16-year-old. Probe's daughter also spoke at the press conference last week. We are devastated by the senseless murder of Andy. Andy's life was robbed by two individuals who did not believe that lives of others matter. We believe that Andy's murder is a direct result of society's decayed family values and the strong effects that social media has on our youth. We as a family in no way feel that Andy's murder was based on race or profession. It was a random act of violence. We ask you to not politicize or use Andy's murder to fuel political agendas or to create cultural wars. The teens cannot face the death penalty. Under Nevada law, if they are convicted in adult court of murder committed before they were 18, the most severe sentence they can receive is 20 years to life in state prison. According to police, the teenagers were in a stolen Hyundai sedan that first struck a 72-year-old bicyclist, drove away, crashed into a Toyota Corolla, and then drove away before striking probes. The video, shot from the front passenger seat, recorded the teens talking and laughing as the vehicle steers toward probes and hits the bicycle from behind. Probes' body slams onto the hood and windshield before a final image shows him on the ground next to the curb. The 18-year-old was arrested that day. The 16-year-old was arrested last week after police said they became aware of the video circulating at a high school and announced their search for the person who recorded it. Horrifying news there. We, our hearts go out to the families of those affected. Coming up in the NFL.
Travis Kelsey's jersey is suddenly one of the hottest in the league. Does Taylor Swift get the credit? Find out after the break. Now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at the fallout from Aaron Rodgers' injury. It's been two weeks since Rodgers was lost for the season with Achilles tear. His replacement, Zach Wilson, though, has struggled with a quarterback rating that ranks next to last in the league. Now one vocal Jets fan who's seen enough is Hall of Famer Joe Namath. Namath, while on the Michael K show this week, called Wilson's performance awful. Former Jets great said, quote, I wouldn't keep him. I've seen enough of Zach Wilson. Meanwhile, Jets coach Robert Sala says the team thinks he's improving and has given no indication they're going to replace him. Now, the issue really shows how difficult it is to scout quarterbacks. Wilson was a second overall pick in the 2021 draft. Right after him, the Niners took quarterback Trey Lance. Both teams thought they had their franchise quarterback. But Wilson was benched last season as the Jets then got Aaron Rodgers this year, while Lance was traded to Dallas last month because San Francisco has found a Brock Purdy as their apparent franchise quarterback. Purdy, though, who ranks second in quarterback rating, amazingly was the last overall pick of the 2022 draft out of more than 250 players. Elsewhere in the league is Taylor Swift enriching Kansas City tight end Travis Kelsey. Certainly looks like it. Kelsey's jersey sales spiked Sunday by nearly 400%, not coincidentally the same day Swift showed up to root him on in a stadium suite with his mom. According to fan merchandise company Fanatics, Kelsey's jersey was a top five seller on Sunday. The four-time All-Pro didn't disappoint, catching seven passes for 69 yards and a touchdown in the Chiefs' win over Chicago. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, 15 games are on, but none are bigger than a Mariners-Astros matchup with both teams needing a win as they battle for the final wildcard spot in the American League. And that's it for your sports news today. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.